I'm Ellen Liebeter. I'm Jake Morecambe. Welcome to Think Sustainability on 2SER, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. Today on the show, we're talking about three of the most common words associated with living sustainably. Reduce, reuse and recycle. We know from our first show that people are pretty keen on recycling. Like We know what bin to put everything in. But the other two seem to get glossed over a bit. Like, why don't we reuse more things? Well, I'm reusing this shirt I'm wearing right now because it's my friend's and not mine, so sharing is caring. (laughs) Or why don't we just reduce our consumption altogether? I think it's time for another rebranding somewhere. Also, you'll hear from our first sustainability champion and how he built his sustainable home from scratch. But first, it's something that might help you get up in the morning. Maybe you're having one now. And maybe it's coming from that fancy machine in your kitchen. I'm talking about coffee. And if you're a coffee drinker, you're probably no stranger to coffee pods. Those are the little things you put into your machine to make all strange sorts of coffee flavours. It seems like these coffee pods are everywhere at the moment. You might have seen George Clooney selling them all sultry on your TV. But something you might not be aware of is the damage they're doing to the environment. Not my vanilla Nespresso. Hi, I'm Damien Jurka, Professor of Resource Futures at the UTS Institute for Sustainable Futures. There's been really an explosion in the home coffee machines with those insertable coffee pods and many are made from aluminium. Uh, casing around the and the coffee, but you find some now also uh, using using plastic. So that feeds into not only thinking about how they're functioning in the machine, but then later how, how are we going to cope with that plastic or aluminium waste? So realistically, how long does it take for these certain coffee pods to break down? Look, I think, in my view, is not thinking of them breaking down in a landfill being at all a a, a good solution. It's can be hundreds of years, you would think. Uh, and I think with the, the huge problem that uh, plastics are contributing to with getting into the ocean and things like that, it's, it's really not, not great. So we need to be thinking about, in the design, but also in our collection systems, ways to offer these materials a pathway to reuse and recycling. Figures estimated or upwards of 3 million of these coffee pods being used a day. In Australia, a day, let alone the amount of coffee pods that are used all across the world over one year, it's quite frightening. Yes, and that's for me is the striking thing that what might look like a good idea when one or two or 10 or 20 people have such a machine, perhaps once it was more a luxury item, but once it just comes to everybody that the scale of the problem changes and I think the scale of the problem waste is really, you know, starts to put pressure on saying is this an appropriate, you know, design relative to other options for making coffee. Because it's been kind of in the past maybe five years that we've really seen the coffee pod come into, you know, Mm. the public use and there's a real luxury, especially when it comes to Nespresso and the way that it's branded and its convenience and it's a very big luxury factor with someone like George Clooney at the face of it. So when you market something like this, people kind of bypass what effect it might have on the planet. 
Yes, I think you're right. It's as you say, Nespresso. It's it's really taken off with respect to the pod culture. Even though perhaps it wasn't the first, Illy and and so on had put some uh, thought into you know, making the good coffee in a in a pod. What I think Nespresso are focused on is making a convenient coffee, which is still. Know, probably okay quality. I know uh, was hearing that they actually put a little bit less than seven grams of coffee in their pods, and so maybe it inclines you to have a second and so on. But I think that idea of having convenient consumption, it's too easy for us to then blot out the impacts of that convenient consumption. And well, Nespresso have got a system available for collecting and recycling the pods where you can drop them off and in conjunction with TerraCycle. But I, th- I think there's a real imperative to make that equally as convenient. With what you're saying about their recycling system at Nespresso is still if you want to do something about it and not just throw it into your bin you actually have to take it back to the store, don't you? Like, you, I imagine... The drop-off points, yes. Yeah, you just, like, people are at home and just collecting coffee pods for, like, months on end, and then they just take it, like, in bulk back to the Nespresso drop-off yes, point. Yes, it's not as convenient. There is, I mean, in partnering with TerraCycle and other group, now there are some other, you know, collection and drop-off and sort of sending options. But so it's really this idea of making it uh, convenient. I, I think we need to be thinking how can we... Uh, have good quality coffee and 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 made in a way with with less waste as well so you might have one of these uh, machines but when you think of the effort of using them in a way which is more friendly to the environment then maybe it starts to make the plunger look attractive or <laughs> retro uh, moment in the sun yeah and so there are a couple of i don't know who exactly has done it but they are trying to come up with coffee pods that are more uh, environmentally friendly and the generic ones that we were talking about and made you mm-hmm. said out of aluminium and plastic are they looking to use different materials to make these other coffee pods well there is i've heard some discussion of uh, biodegradable materials that could then be compostable so that's that's obviously uh, a useful step it's not as bad as um having them made from uh, plastic and so on i understand that they probably won't Compost in your home worm farm in a, in a, at a few weeks, but in uh, industrial composters, yeah, it might be the order of a, a few months, and so that's um, helpful. It sort of makes me think a little bit of the story of the biodegradable plastic bags. Too, all of a sudden, once something is okay, does it just re-energize guilt-free consumption again? You know, so I think we also need to keep in mind: yes, let's try and do it better, but not. In effect, let the system off the hook. We should equally be as proactive in encouraging, you know, new and easier collection systems. Perhaps not only of uh, coffee pods, but other things around the uh, the house that might be um, problem waste that also need new, more convenient channels to come back to, to reuse and recycling. Talking about these biodegradable coffee pods, uh, do you know what they're made of? Like, are they still made of an aluminium base? No, I would imagine. I'm not sure to be honest, but I probably probably a cornstarch or something like that so that it's uh, it's from a plant-based material that's got enough uh, strength to hold the coffee in at you know temperature when you're making it but that it is a naturally derived product and will um will then be able to degrade from heat and and from you know microbes re sort of uh, digesting them so can you put do you reckon you can put them into your own compost? Yes, I think you could. Yes. Uh, it would be uh something that you would need to wait a bit longer for them to go away, but you know, 
even egg shells take a, a while to break down. You know, it's not. It, it depends, I suppose, how uh, how quickly you want to get it back onto the garden. And so this is looking for a solution for the very unbiodegradable coffee pods. Uh, you, you said the plunger. Do you think that there's kind of a way that we should reassess how we are having our coffee in such a coffee pod heavy culture? Yes. When, when I think of coffee, I would say buy, buy good quality to start with so that the, I mean, it might mean you, if it's expensive, you consume a little bit less, but it also hopefully means whether it's fair trade or another high quality producer that there's some money available for paying people along the supply chain for reasonable environmental and social practices uh, along the supply chain. But whether it's a plunger or I'm still using a uh, stovetop espresso that belonged to my grandmother. So obviously, if she invested in a good quality piece of equipment that can be passed on to grandchildren, then it's not a need to buy a, you know, a new machine. So I think thinking about where possible buying quality equipment, I know you can sort of get cheap uh, pod coffee machines, but if they only last 18 months and you have to buy another one, well, there's there's another source of waste as a result of the machine itself. So um, I think looking to buy uh, quality in terms of the equipment, but also that the coffee is, is a useful start. Damien Djoko, Professor of Resource Futures at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at UTS. Well, Jake, there's an answer for you. You can just throw your vanilla coffee pods into the compost. Well, the first step is to start a compost. I've got a lot on my to-do list. (laughs) You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SCR 107.3. Now, this is a phrase that I can remember from way back being taught in primary school. It's the reduce, reuse, recycle motto. Did you learn about that in school, Ellen? Yes, I did, actually, along with do the right thing, put your rubbish in the bin. But you don't really hear much about reduce and reuse. So we wanted to find out if other people were in the same boat as us, whether they'd heard of this phrase before. Yes, I have. I actually have, yeah. Uh, No. No. Uh, Yes, I have. Reuse, recycle, and... Do you know the other one? No. (laughs) Well, I don't think that last guy there is alone. There's a lot of focus on recycling as the biggest issue and a lot of people think to stop there when it goes to thinking about what they do and what they consume. But if you think about it, recycling is getting rid of what you have and no longer want. But what if you just bought less? What if, as opposed to making more waste, you just tried to make less altogether? So here's Jenny Downs from UTS on what she thinks about reducing, reusing and recycling anything that takes or diverts products and waste and things out of landfill is important and that's what the reduce reduce recycle motto really gets to the heart of and there's three different issues there let's start maybe talking about recycling there's a lot of talk about recycling in your everyday life but i still find myself confused as to some things which i can recycle or not do you think we're fully on board with what is recycling and what does it mean? Yeah, it's really interesting, I guess, because um, recycling, particularly in the home, is something that has been around for a really long time and it's fairly standard across councils. You know, you've got your bottles and your paper and things and we understand those basic things, what goes in in which bin. But there are a lot of products that a lot of people are confused about and some of that has to do with the advances in recycling technology. So things that weren't recyclable 10 or 15 or 20 years ago when these recycling programs first started coming 
coming into our homes now are recycling, but the councils are doing it at different rates. So what's recyclable in one council is not necessarily recyclable in another council. Reuse, it seems to kind of work on a number of different ways. Reuse in terms of what you can have in the home and then use for another purpose. But then you also said repurpose things. And when I hear that, I kind of think, you know, secondhand maybe, the things that you might even go to a market store and grab some shoes. But I know that there can be a common attitude that reusing something is a bit of like a cultural cringe or a taboo. The quality might not be as good. It might be dirty. Do you think that plays into why we might not be reusing as much? Definitely. I think there's um, certainly cultural perceptions that have been built up in our sort of consumerist society that the new is cool, it's clean, it's it's high quality, it's fashionable, trendy at the moment. And so there's definitely a perception, like if you think about clothes, you know, there, there might be that kind of, oh, somebody else has worn this, maybe somebody else's sweat is in this jumper. Of course, the fact that your own sweat is in your own clothes and goes through the wash and then is clean to wear, you know, there's a lot of perceptions out there. I think there are definitely campaigns out there that are trying to alter perception. So just as an example, um, you know, Vinnie's, which is one of the standard recycling shops, uh, they had a campaign where they actually got fashion and stylists to come in and dress models using clothes found from the Vinnie stores and then put them up on posters to show the really fashionable outfits that you could make. I guess that resonated with with sort of young, particularly women who, you know, could see these gorgeous models wearing these gorgeous clothes and then thought, oh, I can come to Vinnie's and get really cool clothes, particularly if you've got a, you know, a bit of a trend for vintage, you might find those in vintage op shops and things like that. So I guess there's a movement to try and change some of those perceptions. It seems like reuse and reduce are quite closely linked because by reusing something, you're automatically reducing waste or your consumption of new items. But then reduce, perhaps putting it into the perspective of food waste is another story completely because you can't buy secondhand food. I guess one of the distinctions between reuse and reduce is that reuse is something that you've got, you've got your use out of it already. And then it's just, you know, being a bit more creative about other ways that you can do it. Or for example, the idea of buying things secondhand, you're still getting the thing that you want. But reducing does require a further level of of kind of, it's something that you might want, but you're not going to take it. Or, you know, if you're looking for, perhaps you want to reduce the packaging you know, that comes in the food that you buy, you've got to change what you're doing. So there's a level of inconvenience there. On the food waste, um, it is interesting because particularly what we're talking about perception and cringe, reuse is a particular step in the food waste hierarchy. So this hierarchy of of actions that we try to do to avoid food or other products going to landfill. But Uh, The term reuse has these connotations for people which are really difficult to deal with, but it is actually something that happens when you think of food rescue charities. So, you know, there are stores who who sell food and then at the end of the day they have food left over, so they go and donate it to a food rescue charity who then has a network for distributing it on the same day, might be to families or to low-income households and things. So in that sense, the food is being reused in the sense that it was available for sale, It, it wasn't sold um, so we find another purpose for that food by redistributing it you know a lot of resources go into creating our food not just the the natural resources like you know all the minerals and and um, the time and effort of growing it but the energy and the water that goes into growing it and then processing it and transporting it to the shops and you know refrigerating so whenever any food is not eaten all of that um, resources and energy that's gone into growing that food is wasted so 
um, reducing food waste is is uh, really important and uh, the you know the way we kind of talk about it is any food that's not hu- eaten by humans is lost from the food from the food chain you know which is which is a shame so there's a lot of great things um uh, great campaigns out there at the moment that are trying to educate people on how to reduce food waste which are based on um you know how you make your shopping decisions and your purchasing decisions to make sure you've always got the right things and the right quantity in your household how to store them properly how to prepare them so that you're using more of the product and you're not kind of throwing out say the bottom and the top of the carrot just because that's how you've always cut up a carrot you know there's no reason you can't eat the bottom of a carrot there's nothing that it feels different tastes different is different but we're just so used to cutting it off just for that clean nice end and throwing the bottom away that's exactly it and, and the same thing is not even just food waste you know it's purchasing clothes even you know you, it, it's this whole thing of just reducing your consumption so you have less waste that's going out there you're in the shop and you're like i like that top but i don't really need it because i have five others that look the exact same so that adjustment of attitude to be that you don't need something. Yeah, and I guess that's one of the interesting things. So we touched on, um, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle as this kind of simple um, framework for avoiding landfill. But there are definitely um, people out there who are getting really creative and they're adding all sorts of steps, um, you know, in this in this framework. Um, I guess trying to come up again with language that really appeals to people. And my favourite one, um, which people often put at the top of this, this kind of hierarchy, is refuse. So before you try and reduce the waste that's created from something, uh, just refuse refusing something that you don't need so that could be refusing an entire product like you said I could buy that top but I don't really need it because I already have 10 tops that look like it back in my wardrobe or you know I could um, refuse something that comes in in plastic packaging for example if I could get it without the packaging adding another read to this hierarchy yeah definitely the one that I'm um, kind of familiar with is is much more complex and I'm not suggesting that it you know becomes the mantra out there because it's a lot in there but I talk about refuse reduce reuse repurpose recycle recover you know so and it picks up all these different complexities um, of what we can be doing up and down the chain it's it's something that probably in business is a a hierarchy that's more more used because the options available to business are greater than the options to consumers but I think having this this sort of hierarchy is really important it's interesting that you decided to start at the bottom we talk about hierarchies um Uh, when we're doing this research and the idea is that whatever's first is the one that's most important so the reduce reuse recycle the idea is that you reduce as much as you can whatever you can't reduce you try to reuse you reuse as much as you can and then whatever you can't reuse the very last step is recycle but I do think it's interesting that for most people that hierarchy is almost flipped on its head recycling is the thing that people do most of partly because it's so easy and convenient it's out of mind I just put it in there and I don't have to change anything else about what I'm doing I don't have to think about it anymore it's it's very simple and I can feel good that I've done something you know good for the environment which you certainly have it's better than putting it into landfill but the amount of energy that's um and and materials that are recovered through recycling is is small compared to not using them in the first place Jenny Downs, research consultant at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at UTS. Think about what in your home is sustainable and not just what you do in your home, but what is sustainable about your house? 
in my house, we have a half-flush toilet. Well, I guess that's a start, but you have nothing on Lawrence Stonard. Lawrence works in the Faculty of Engineering at UTS, and in 2012, he and his wife undertook a project to build a house, which was jam-packed full of sustainable features. And I'm talking about more than a rainwater tank and a half-flush toilet. Both my wife and I have had a feeling that we wanted to do something for the environment and so we looked around and found a suitable old building stock. The old house was over 100 years old and was very dilapidated. It didn't have any heritage listing and it was in a quiet area. So we asked to build a house that was in keeping with the area. We decided to try and maintain the materials that were part of the building and put them back into the building. So we retained on site lots of the concrete and bricks, uh, roofing materials. So I took the building down, stored as much as I could on site and sent out for recycling to the Bower or in Addison Road parts that were surplus to my requirements or couldn't be stored. So it's not a high-tech house. It's using as much technology, proven technology, So that's the way that the house came about. So building a house that is sustainable in the materials and the resources that you use to build it, what was the planning process like? The original idea was that we went to something called Solar House Day, and that happens every year in uh, early September. Uh, We went all over Sydney looking at houses, and some people had just put in a rainwater tank, some people had put on solar cells on the roof to catch a PV, a photovoltaic, A lot of people opened their front doors for allowing the public once a year to come in and see what they were doing. Uh, So we had a look at some of these houses. We went out to North Richmond TAFE and had a look at their sustainable area. I'm lucky that uh, my block size is about 380 square metres. For uh, in a city, that's quite a lot of land. And the normal block size, I live in Leichhardt, so the normal block size is about 170 square metres, of which are allowed to build 50% house and 50% porous surface area. So it means that you're limited on what you can actually put onto the block. Uh, It depends on the council regulations. So we went to a building designer and got them to give us some eco-friendly ideas on what could be built, what was possible, then went to another architect and got them to design uh, the house for us. So Caroline Pidcock came into the scene and she designed us a three-bedroom house. So take us on a virtual reality tour of the house. What does it look like? The front of the house is a single story and the second story is at the back of the house. So there's no real bulk to the house at the front as you walk in. There are eaves that overhang the house and this allows the sun to come in during the winter but in the summer when the sun is high and hot the eaves stop the house heating up. You come in through the front door and immediately off to your left hand side is the kitchen with windows looking out onto the street so you can prepare a meal and you can watch your neighbours going backwards and forwards. It makes you part of the community. Also in the front of the house uh, to the right is the television and dining area. The house is actually a C-shape. So there is an area with a a timber deck, used recycled timbers from the old house. And there is a pond which is six metres long by a metre wide by about 300 millimetres deep. And we happen to have koi carp or goldfish in there. And the reason for that is to kill the mosquitoes. There are small windows above the pond and that allows air to come in, go over the water to cool down and then enter the house. And the hallway, there are windows for allowing the air to escape. So you have an action of 
air entering the house across the pond, cooling down and bringing the cool air into the house. And then it can go through the house and upstairs at the back and out through the top windows. So that's the chimney effect to draw the cool air through the house. Locking down the house in the hot part of the day means that you don't heat up. It may get slightly warmer. We've lived in the house for about 18 months now. In the very hot days, it's got up to 26 degrees in there, which is not too bad. Uh, And during the winter, it gets down to about 13 degrees. On a normal day-to-day basis, the temperature is quite pleasant inside. The air is fresh and clean. The floors are concrete slab all the way through polished concrete. And the idea is this for allergies. If you have carpets, then you can get dust mites. So it's relatively easy to clean. Going through the house, it has a timber staircase going up to the second level, and it's very light construction upstairs. And the idea of the light construction is that it may heat up, but it doesn't retain energy like the double brick downstairs. So at the end of the day, when you open up the windows, when it starts cooling down, it allows the heat to dissipate quickly. How about solar panels? you have solar panels on the house? Uh, yes, we have photovoltaic cells. We have three kilowatts. They went onto the roof during the build. So as soon as I had a roof on the front of the house, I put the PVs on. And we have an inverter, and we can produce up to a maximum of three kilowatts because that was the space area that I had. So during the build, the PVs were used to actually use some of the energy into doing the work. It's very expensive on energy from concrete polishers. They take a lot of power to polish the floors. So environmentally, making concrete polished floors is expensive. But if you put carpets down every 10, 15 years, you're replacing a carpet, whereas the concrete floor is there forever. What about um, rainwater or sourcing your water? You use rainwater tanks in the home. As part of the build, we put in 16,000 litres of rainwater tank in the front garden. In the back garden, I have a 1,000 litre rainwater tank buried in the back garden. And on the side of the house, I have a 800 litre rainwater tank that's connected to the upstairs garden. So upstairs, we have a roof garden, which is a nice area. It catches the sun and it's what's known as a microclimate. So that was built over the bathroom toilet underneath and it has an area of about two metres by two and a half metres and it's approximately 300 millimetres deep. That was filled with a vegetable mix which has vermiculite in it which is a fill material because I wanted to keep the weight down on the roof. The roof was designed specifically for the roof garden and it has extra support in it. And up there we have early ripening tomatoes. We've actually had three lots of tomatoes through there. I usually use a a green mulch. So in the winter, I'll plant birdseed in there and wait for it to grow 150, 200 mil high and then dig it back in and let it rot down for a couple of weeks. And then we plant into that. And the water from the roof garden drains off into the 800 litre tank and there's a pump in there which brings the water back into it. So I water the garden from the tank. Now when the water runs out, if it doesn't rain, I can bring water from the 16,000 litres around the house back into there. So there's always water supply. Uh, Also up on the roof, I have a 22 tube evacuated solar hot water service and that supplies the hot water needs for the house. You mentioned earlier that there were a number of different materials that you wanted to reuse and it was important for you to put them into the house. 
What were some of the things that you reused? My wife and I cleaned about 8,000 bricks from the original house, which were lime render, so they were relatively easy to clean, just a boring job, and they were stored on site. The previous house had a concrete driveway, which I broke up, and we stockpiled a massive pile of concrete, broken tiles at the front of the house. So when we built the house, it's on a sloping block. There was some foundations put down and then some brick piers put in. And then this was backfilled with all of the material that I'd saved. So all of the concrete, instead of going off and being recycled, it was put back into the base of the house as part of the thermal mass. Just going back to the bricks, you only actually used 400 new bricks and a whole lot of them came from the UTS skip. Yes, um, when the University of Technology was built, it was the first pre- and post-concrete structure built in the 60s. And the idea then was that they built the building and everything was supported on steel and concrete columns. They infilled the walls in the building with brick and they don't actually hold the building up. And I was lucky enough to acquire these. I went and saw the uh, people that look after the skip and asked them whether I could have the bricks. So I saved the university dumping costs, and I collected the bricks and took them home and cleaned them, and then they were reused in the build. Lawrence Donard from the Faculty of Engineering at UTS. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. For more information about what you've heard today, head along to our website, 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. And you can also subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. I'm Ellen Leibeter. I'm Jake Morecambe. See you next week.